Welcome to Inquiry, a podcast geared towards students where we discuss all things related to tech, from school to industry. My name is Annie. And I'm Daniel. And together, we are your co-hosts. For today's episode, we are so excited to introduce Chris Whalen. Chris is an experienced technology professional with a passion for cybersecurity and is currently the director of IT and cybersecurity at Solus, a Canadian high-tech company. His experience includes leading various cybersecurity programs, mentoring colleagues, performing deep technical analysis, and adopting new technologies that have consistently been proven a success. Chris has a degree in mathematics from the University of Ottawa and is involved in recreational hockey, both as a player and a coach. We are honored to have you on our podcast, Chris. Thank you so much for taking the time. Can you start us off by telling everyone a little bit more about yourself? Sure thing, Daniel. Listen, thank you very much for having me. That was a great introduction, actually. That pretty much covers how I would introduce myself. My name is Chris Whalen. I'm the director of IT and cybersecurity for a high-tech company uh, headquartered here in Ottawa called Solace. Um, At Solace, you know, I manage a team responsible for the core technology used by our employees. And also um, part of my job in cybersecurity I work to uh, protect and and assess the risk for our most important asset, which of course is information. And uh, as you said, outside of my work, I'm involved in in recreational hockey, at least when there's no lockdown going on. I like to get out and play and stay active. And I also coach my daughter's team, which is a lot of fun, very rewarding. So yeah. And and with that, you know, my daughters, they they tend to keep me pretty busy as well. So yeah. That sounds great. So I think we can start off from the beginning. So how did you first become interested in tech? Oh, gee. Yeah. So it's probably the same answer that many other people started in tech and video games. And I'll say that unlike today where video games, you know, they're so pervasive. When I was growing up, they weren't really there. It wasn't really a mainstream thing. You know, some people had computers or consoles at their home. But my introduction to video games came when an older neighbor who was uh, babysitting me brought me down to the local arcade. And for those that might not know, an arcade is like a building you go to and there's a bunch of coin operated video games. So you insert your coin. Usually it's a quarter or a dollar, depending on what year you you, you went there and you can play a game. And I went there with, you know, a couple of... uh, dollars worth of coins, uh, but it was very short. And so they got out this milk crate for me so that I could actually see what was on the video game. And I put my quarter in and, you know, as expected, it was game over in about 10 seconds, but I was hooked. You know, this really, really fascinated me. And so I went through my quarters very quickly wanting to play more, but I, you know, I had no more money and I had to wait until my next allowance, which was, you know, many days away, but I watched the bigger kids play. And by bigger kids, like these were kids that were two or three times my height and and my age. And I watched what they were doing and I got to see how they could play the game. And then, you know, after I left the arcade, are you familiar with the, the Netflix miniseries called The Queen's Gambit, Daniel? Have you heard of that? Yes. Um, I've seen the first episode. Okay. Yeah. So it's a great series. The, uh, the main character, I believe her name is Beth. She gets introduced to the game of chess. And one of the things that she does is she visualizes the game. I guess it's at night. You know, she sees the chessboard and the moves and she replays the moves all in her mind. And, and I kind of did that with video games. Nowhere near as vividly as she could do it, of course. It's a TV show after all. Uh, but I sort of played the game out in my mind. 
And I got really, really good at the game. And so here I am, you know, this little kid on a milk curtain so I could see the game. And I'd have crowds of people around me watch me play. Um, but that didn't phase me. Like, I didn't really care who was watching. I only cared about beating that video game. Like, I was just captivated by that. Uh, then I got my first computer. And, and that really uh, changed the game because I wanted to make video games like so many other people. But, you know, I'd spend all day programming, creating these little silly graphics, you know, a dancing uh, sprite or what have you, with a bit of music. And uh, that, yeah, I really enjoyed doing that. Then, then came the summer uh, before I started high school. And when I went to high school, high school started in grade nine uh, when I went to high school. So that summer between grade eight and grade nine, a lot of my friends and, and classmates, they, they were taking credit courses at high school. I think it was English. I think that was a popular one. And, and they said, no, Chris, you should do this as well. And I thought, well, you know, sounds like a pretty good thing to do in the summertime. Uh, and I looked at the, the sheet of the course offerings and I noticed one that was for computer programming. So I signed up for that, you know, told my friends, they said, well, Chris, like, why, why would you sign up for that? Like, there's no credit and you got to pay money for that. And <laughs> I didn't care. Like I wanted to take computer program. I wanted to learn more about that. I just, you know, I needed to uh, feed my curiosity. So yeah, I was really programming the video games, but, you know, I took a bit of a break in high school, except for maybe playing the odd video game. But, you know, I was interested in other things. I was interested in sports, both both recreationally and, and competitively. Uh, I was interested in cars when I was old enough to drive. And, uh, and other, you know, hanging out with my friends and girlfriends and that sort of thing. So I kind of pushed computers to the side for much of my high school. But, you know, I still love math. I still love science. I was uh, determined to go on to university and study something in those related fields. I just wasn't quite sure yet what I was going to do. And you know what, actually, um, in addition to, you know, those advanced courses in high school, like calculus and physics and algebra and chemistry, you know, I also took auto shop. And it's kind of interesting, you know, here I am uh, taking all these advanced courses, preparing me for university. And then I'm also taking, you know, a trade, an auto shop, uh, really because, well, two things. One, I had a, a crappy car that I wanted to work on and fix up. Uh, but two, I was really interested in engines. And I thought, you know, maybe this is a career path for me, you know, designing Formula One engines or something like that. But that course was really neat in that I got to meet other people, people that were outside of my bubble, you know, people that were nowhere near interested in technology or math or science, people that were probably not going to university or even college in some cases. But guys that, uh, a couple of guys in particular, that really changed my way of thinking in that they were laser focused on doing what they wanted to do. And in one guy's case, you know, he wanted to open up a garage to fix cars. And I was thinking, you know, well, why, why would you want to do that? Like, shouldn't you go to the university? And like, after talking to him, like he's a very smart individual, maybe he couldn't have, you know, gotten straight A's in calculus or chemistry, but he was very good at what he did. And, and I thought this was very interesting, you know, as a new viewpoint, people and viewpoints that were outside of my bubble that really helped me think about, you know, how other people think. Yeah. So came back to computers, more importantly, like when the internet was catching fire and I spent an obscene amount of time online playing some multiplayer games, but really exploring systems. And I got to say hacking in the uh, the legal or the true sense of just trying things out, trying to get around, you know, understand how things work, 
and finding new ways to do things. So what drove, what drove that interest, I guess, in technology? I suppose with video games, you look at video games, especially when you're young, for me, it was something new and it was something that wasn't physical. It was something in this virtual world, this digital world, and the possibilities to me seemed endless. And I was fascinated by that. You know, you could fly a ship into outer space. You could command an army into battle, or you could build an empire from scratch, starting in the Stone Age. Like these, these possibilities in my mind were just fascinating. So I guess that was really a big part of it. But I think it was the curiosity, the curiosity of exploring systems the curiosity of looking at these networked environments online. And I'll, I'll say, yeah, you know, poking and prodding a little bit about at their security to see what they have set up. That sounds great. Out of curiosity, what was the first video game you played at the arcade that really got you hooked? <laughs> it's a game called Pac-Man. I don't know if you've heard of it, but at a point in time, they had something like it was Pac-Man Mania. There were songs that became popular. They play on the radio, the top 40 when that was a thing. And I became a master at that game. Like once I figured out how all the patterns for the different mazes, I could put my quarter in, I could play for hours. The owner of the arcade did not like me at all because you can imagine you got this kid who put a quarter and he's been on the game for over an hour. And he's got all these people lined up ready to feed their quarters into the machine. And, and he's losing money on this. And here I am, you know, I don't understand. Like I put my quarter in, I paid. For, for my play, you know, what's the problem? But no, you know, I, that was a business lesson for me in that, you know, he, he needs to make his money. And when I'm, I'm on the games, it was just Pac-Man, there's other games too that I'd mastered. He was losing money. So he banned me from playing some of the games. Oh, wow. Suffering from success. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so moving on, after going into high school, you were still interested in math and science. So when you went on into university, why did you choose math out of every STEM program that was available? Right. Yeah. It's a good question because I didn't start out in math. When I went to university, you know, I knew that I had a deep interest in STEM and math and science and also engineering. I wasn't quite sure which way I wanted to go. And it's, you know, at that age, that's a hard decision. Like it's, it's a struggle for a lot of people. I'm sure many of your listeners are considering the, this very thing now. And I remember in the later stages of high school, that, that last year, people tell me, you know, you got to choose your university and you have to choose your program and make sure you make a wise choice because that really sets you up for the rest of your life. And that can be stressful. You know, like how can I figure out what I want to do when I don't even know what's out there? I need to try some things out. And so at that time, you know, unlike today, today there's a lot of information at your fingertips. You can visit the universities, you can go online and check out their programs. You can talk to other people. That's awesome. And encourage people to do that for sure. I didn't have access to that information you know, some of the universities came by our high school and talked about the programs. And to me, it all sounded good. But um, I grew up in Kingston and and there was a rep from Queens that came by and they had a program where you could spend a day with a Queens student. It was a first year Queens student and a program you think might be interesting. So I did that. I did that and paired up with a first year in the engineering program. I don't recall if it was mechanical or civil engineering. But he showed me around and he, you know, he showed me the coursework and that was great because I was really worried I was not prepared uh, for university, but my high school teachers did an excellent job. They were awesome in preparing us students uh, for, for the, uh, the first year courses in university. But yeah, so I, I dabbled a bit in mechanical engineering. 
computer science, you know, both programs, I think are, are different, but both very interesting to me. With mechanical engineering, I'll go back to, you know, the auto shop days in high school where I thought, you know, maybe I'll be a mechanical engineer and, and I don't know, work for Formula One team and help design, you know, the next generation racing engine. That didn't happen, of course, but uh, I knew computers were a big part of my interest. And so computer science seemed to be the natural thing. But when I was in the computer science program, like there's a lot of, a lot of courses I took that were very valuable to me, but it also self-learned a lot of it as well. Um, but, you know, going back to the courses, I look at course I took in like data structures and, and algorithms. Uh, I took a course in artificial intelligence, which, which was interesting because to me, I was thinking, you know, program and, and develop AI sort of thing. But there was a lot of cognitive psychology that was part of that course. And that was awesome. I, I learned a lot there. Different way of thinking for sure. But, you know, because I couldn't really figure things out, I went back to math and I didn't go through a degree in mathematics because I was gifted, certainly, you know, not gifted enough to, to solve the Riemann hypothesis. Uh, I guess I got as far, where did I end up in, you know, abstract, abstract algebra, touching a little bit on Galois theory. And, and that's probably the extent of it, which is very cool stuff, by the way. But yeah, it was a challenge. Math was a challenge for me. I knew that in studying math, that would help me hone my problem solving ability and my thinking ability. And I felt that I could apply that to any direction that I wanted to go once I figured out what that was going to be. That sounds great. So what would you say was the impact of a math degree on your career? Oh, well, in my current job, we do have a minimum education requirement of a university degree. So that definitely helps, you know, getting your foot in the door, I, I suppose, certainly helps in that respect. But, you know, the program math, you know, it's really about problem solving and you look at you look at technology today wow like it's just advancing and advancing and advancing and the rate of change is rapidly increasing it could be something you've learned today becomes obsolete next year or in a few years and so i felt with math with my math training i think that gave me the tools not only to problem solve but to adapt and to apply myself into into different areas, sort of taking like the generalist approach, but also having the ability to become a specialist if I needed to do that, to do a deep dive on something and, you know, be able, being able to pivot to something new because, you know, technology is always changing. There's new things coming down the pipe all the time. That sounds great. Would you recommend someone who's interested into pursuing a role in IT to take on a math degree? Yeah, for sure. The interesting thing with IT is that there's programs at the college level at Algonquin here in Ottawa. They got an excellent program that will help prepare you uh, for an entry level position in the world of, of IT and, and cybersecurity. Um, I found that um, the university really prepares you and helps you think about solving problems and the ability to learn, learn new things and to challenge yourself. And whether it's math, or physics, you know, science uh, degree or engineering, computer or otherwise, for sure, yeah, they're gonna prepare you. It actually puts you ahead of the crowd in some respects. That sounds great. So after your university degree, where did you head off after graduation? The first real job that I got, like I'd worked part-time throughout high school and a bit in university and, and I can appreciate 
a lot of students, you know, their time is very tight and it's tough to pick up and do other things in addition to your academics and maybe their interests. But, you know, the part-time work for me was a necessity because I needed, I needed money. I wanted to have some money to be able to do the things with my friends, but I think it really helped me um, learn and get some experience. But yeah, my first real job was at a high-tech startup that crashed and burned. <laughs> it failed, you know, it went bankrupt after a year's time. And that was interesting, but you know what? I had a lot of fun along the way. I met a lot of really cool people, a lot of people that were uh, my age, you know, recent graduates or early on in their career, they were driven individuals, you know, smart and uh, a lot of great experience that I got working at that startup. I tell my friends and, and my colleagues that, you know, the year time, year, year's worth of time I spent at that startup easily equates to you know, two, three, or even four years of experience elsewhere. So yeah, startup, crash and burn. I'm glad, very thankful for that experience. But, you know, after that, I spent, spent a year in the federal government at the uh, Department of Natural Resources as an IT consultant. And that was interesting too. That was really good experience. They don't go bankrupt in the government, but the department that I worked in was kind of winding down. The service that they were providing to Canadians was no longer a necessity. And so being a consultant, you know, I was the first one to be let go, whereas other people that were on, you know, permanent placements, they were shifted to other departments or other places in the government. But that, that was that was fine by me too. It was a good experience. Then I joined Solace. I joined Solace early on. First, actually, as a software developer. So that was a change. You know, I was doing IT work before. And then, yeah, now it's where I am today, many, many years later. That sounds like a very interesting path. Did you ever consider going into video game creation due to your interest since you were small in video games? Yes, I did. That's a good question. I really did. I But early on, uh, early on, before, before I started uh, working professionally, we'll say, yeah, you know, I I played a lot of different games. I'd seen what worked and what didn't. And I thought, you know, wouldn't that be cool? Actually, when I was in university, being, you know, the naive guy that I was, I had thought that, you know, I'll graduate from university, I'll work a couple of years in a high-tech firm, and then I'll start my own company. And, you know, maybe it could have been video games or maybe something else. Uh, but yeah, you know, I definitely did think about that. And what's interesting, you know, going back to how, quickly technology changes, you look at video games and you look at where they started and the graphics. And as video games advance and technology advance, I used to think that, you know, here's a new video game and look at the graphics on, you know, check out the graphics on this game. It's so real, uh, realistic and, and amazing. And then, you know, realized that it was all about the gameplay. I look at the games that my daughters play and they're in grade school. They play games like Minecraft and Roblox and, you know, games that, you know, the graphics are not high-end or realistic, but they don't care. They're all about the gameplay. So yeah, I did think about making my own video game. Actually, at that first startup, we were developing 3D technology and there was a team of computer artists and they're really good at what they did. And they had experience working in the video game industry. And, you know, they told me a bit about that. They went back to that industry after that company had crashed and burned. And yeah, I just didn't think it was something that I wanted to do. Sounds great. So what would you say are some struggles that you faced throughout your career? Well, when that first company crashed and burned, that was a struggle because I had to find a new job and it was in a downturn in the economy. And it was a bad job market. Companies and technology were laying off people. And it was just a tough reality when 
you know, I look at my bank account and the money is, is decreasing. It's not increasing from, from earning the salary. And that, that, that was a bit of a struggle. Uh, but then I landed, you know, contract with the federal government and I'll thank my experience in IT for that because a lot of my friends and colleagues, those that worked as a software developer, you know, they were struggling to find placement. Whereas with me and IT, every company needs IT. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether you're in retail or communications or finance, it doesn't matter. Uh, you're going to need IT. You're going to need computers and technology and systems. And so that played out to my benefit. So that's how I was able to uh, kind of land back on my feet again. But yeah, that was a struggle. I think another one too, you know, early days at my current company, because software development was kind of new to me as a professional thing, you know, I, I knew how to, how to code and all that, but I was working with people who were much my senior, you know, people that had years of experience, they're very smart and, and very good. And, and uh, I'm not sure if you've ever heard the term of uh, imposter syndrome. Have you ever heard of that, Daniel? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So <laughs> I felt that in some of these meetings where I'm surrounded by these highly talented people who, you know, extremely smart and gifted, and I'm kind of new and, you know, it's not my fault. I shouldn't feel that way. And I realized later on how silly that was, but yeah, I certainly felt a bit of that early on until I kind of figured out that that's, that was a silly thing to think about. You know, of course, when you're new, you just don't have that experience yet. You got to gain it first. No problem. The biggest cybersecurity conference in the world is something that happens yearly, you know, pre-pandemic, at least in Las Vegas. It's called DEF CON. And there's, you know, thousands of people that go there and people that are extremely gifted. And the first time I went, you know, same thing. I thought, you know, maybe my skills are inadequate. And banking on past experience of how silly that is, and it, it is silly, talking to people and getting out there, I realized that, hey, actually, I seem to know a thing or two and, and I could teach other people the same thing. And then I was able to cement that or prove it to myself. I signed up for a capture the flag contest in and did quite well. You know, I, I placed quite high for, for what I was able to, the time I was able to spend on that. So yeah, there's that. But in terms of anything else for struggles, you know, in terms of management, we'll say from a management point of view, you do come across tough decisions. You're going to come across tough decisions and no matter what you do, but in management for sure. Are you, Daniel, are you familiar with the train track problem? I'm not sure if that's the right, where there's different variations of it. Yes, it's the philosophical problem with five people on one track and one on the other. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you think about that, and there's different variations of that where, you know, you see the train coming down the track and there's five people on the track. And it's like, oh my God, like the, if you do nothing, the train's going to run them over and they're going to die. And that's not good. Then you see a lever that can switch the direction of the track, but there's one person there. And then the question is, you know, what do you do? You know, what would you do, Daniel? And it's a tough thing to answer, of course. Do you, um, do you let the five people die or do you let the one person die? And you think, well, okay, one versus five, you know, at least you save four lives. But yeah, it's a philosophical or a psychological problem in that if you do nothing, they haven't done anything, so five people will die. But if you do one thing, then it's, you know, it's your fault that that one person died. Uh, but then I guess you could say, well, in doing nothing, you know, you've made that conscious effort to that as well. You know, bringing that into, into tech, you know, ethical technologists in the field of AI, they come across this. And you look at self-driving cars, they have similar problems where the self-driving vehicle could be going down the road and there's a poor mother that slipped and fell and, you know, she pushes the, the baby carriage out in the path 
of the vehicle and the vehicle does nothing, it's going to hit that and that's not good. But if it swerves to miss, it'll jump the curb and hit a bunch of people on the sidewalk. And that's not good as well. And those are tough problems. And I'm glad I don't have to make those types of tough decisions because they, they're definitely not easy. But um, going back to, you know, some things I have faced and when you have, you're responsible for a team and there's someone on your team who is underperforming, you know, you try to work with them and try to get them back to the level to where you expect them to be, but maybe it's not working out for whatever reason, you know, they're not driven or they don't care, or maybe, you know, it's just not the right thing for them. And you got to make a tough call of what to do about that, you know, and you can struggle with that because you know that person, you probably have a personal insights into them and, you know, it'd be terrible to have to fire them. So I came across that decision early on. Luckily, I didn't have to fire that person. He had left on his own. But yeah, that was something that I did struggle with for sure. We've talked a bit about leadership roles. So you started out as a software programmer at Solus. And why did you choose to transition into more leadership and managing roles? In a typical tech company, there's usually two paths towards a leadership position, you know, going up to the C uh, level, the executive level. And for the moment, I'm going to exclude those that have customer facing roles, like a sales engineer or excuse me, a product support engineer, or maybe someone who's on the professional services team, focus maybe on like software developers or people that work in IT or cybersecurity, the individual contributor path, someone who, you know, they're not a manager, there's someone that produces at individual level, and you have the management level, you know, the leadership. When you start out, the entry level positions are going to be an individual contributor, and you'll be one for, you know, that first zero to three years of experience, we'll say, then, then you go up to an intermediate role as you show competence, you take on more responsibilities, you generate some more autonomy for the things that you work on. But you'll get to a point where you have more experience, you have more autonomy, you're solving tougher problems, and you get to the senior level where you will be making a choice of management path or individual contributor path. And they're both equally as rewarding, depending on what you're looking for. And equally as successful, you know, success is how you define it, of course. On the individual side, you know, you become the senior level and expert, and then you can move up to to VP and and C-level for sure. Uh, But on the management side, where you want to manage people and take on like a team lead role, show that you're you're competent there, then you can be the manager and then up to director and VP and, and so on. It's a decision you'll have to make because as you get into the management or the leadership side of the house, you will have less time to spend on the technology. You know, if you're a software developer, you might not have as much time to write code or develop software because you need to be managing a team. So there's that. Coming back to me, the way it worked out, I started out as a software developer. The company didn't need IT at the time, but as the company grew, the needs for the company did grow. And and it was a startup of that that point. And, you know, I was wearing multiple hats. I was doing software development. I was helping out on the IT side and I was also doing product support. And I was liking all of those things, but, you know, the company had a need for full-time IT person. And I took that on. So, you know, I like this. I'll take on the responsibility and I'll show the initiative and ask to do this job. And so that helped me get into a management position because, you know, first it was just me. I was, you know, manager of one, so to speak. But I was the only one responsible for that area. So I was the leader in, in that area and and a, a really good, competent, uh, trustworthy leader. And as the company grew further and further, more and more rather, 
Uh, we had more needs for IT. I needed more help. We hired people and then, you know, managing more people. And that just continued to grow. I'll say this though, like when I transitioned from manager to director, at the time, this was a few years ago, um, cybersecurity was not a big thing for the company, but it was coming. I knew it was coming. I really, really enjoyed it. You know, it's become my passion, cybersecurity, that is. And I laid it out that, you know, we need, you know, our company needs somebody to take this on. I want to be that person. Here's what I'm going to do. You know, here's what my plan is. And like, yeah, you know, this is all great. We're going to elevate your position, Chris. You're going to be the director. We'll promote you to that level. And there you go. That sounds great. So what would you say are some skills that are crucial to be successful in the tech industry? Right. Success, again, is how you define it. Like, I know there are people that are software developers. I know software developers that they work their nine to five. Work is work and, you know, their home life is their time. And they're very good at what they do when they're working, you know, on, on the work, work time, we'll say, or work hours. Uh, and they're well compensated for that. And they're very content. They're very happy. And to them, you know, they, they would feel themselves as being a success. And I agree. To me, they are a success because they're very happy doing what they're doing. And they've made a good career or, and well compensated for that. Uh, others, they want something else. Uh, like me, you know, I want to advance my career. I want to develop it. And in doing so, you need to take on more responsibilities. And you need to show competence. And you need to show that you're you're trustworthy and you'll take the initiative. And if there's something new you're not sure about, then you'll go and you'll learn about that and you'll figure it out. And you won't come to the higher ups or the management with problems. You'll come to them with problems and you'll come with them to them, sorry, with solutions and options. You'll say, you know, here's a problem. Here's a couple of potential solutions. And here's where I think we should consider. Here's my suggestion on how to solve this problem. And you're making your manager's job a lot easier. I remember early on in that startup, I remember going in one day and he was showing me how to do something. And it was something, a task that he was normally doing. And I joked with him and said, you know, by showing me this task, you know, I'm going to take over your job. Just as a joke, you know, I'm just having some fun with him. And he said, you know what, Chris, actually, this is what I hope. He said, I'm trying to work myself out of a job. And I thought, well, what do you mean? Like, why do you want to work yourself out of a job? And he said, I want to elevate the people that report to me, uh, to my position. And in doing so, you know, I can take my next step. And to me, that made perfect sense. Like it was a moment of clarity. It was like, well, of course, like he has his own ambitions. He wants to move up to the next step. But in order to do so, he needs to find his replacement. And so it's doing that. It's finding the replacement, but it's being that replacement. It's helping your manager out, making their lives a lot easier. I'll offer a different answer too, because I do get asked this fairly often as to, you know, what technologies are important? What do you need to be successful in technology? Do I need to study Java or C++ or Python or whatever? And to me, I say, you know what? Technology is just moving so fast. Don't concentrate on one thing. Like I'm a really big believer in mastering the fundamentals. It doesn't matter what language, which, which programming language you pick up, pick one and go with it and learn it. And then you can pick up another one quite easily. It's not a big challenge once you 
learn Java to pick up C++. It's probably easier to go the other way because C++ is a bit more challenging, but it, it doesn't matter. You get one, you're going to pick you're going to pick up the next one. So yeah, it's that ability to to solve problems, to make your manager's life a lot easier, of course, to show the initiative, to take on new things, new challenges, and to get things done. That sounds great. I'd like to circle back to your last response where you you touched upon your transition into cybersecurity. I was wondering, when did you start to get interested in that domain and why was the reason? Right. Yeah, it's a good question. Seems that I've always been interested in cybersecurity. I'll go back to my early days on the internet where I was spending an obscene amount of time online, but I was very curious on how things worked. And, you know, I was exploring other systems and I was probing the security of other systems and figuring things out there. So I guess it was always with me. And in IT, especially my early days, there wasn't really a, a clear-cut need for cybersecurity. It was sort of something that that competent IT people would do. And, and I did that, and I, I went above and beyond what the basics were in, in terms of protecting the company's information and learned a little bit about, uh, about how to do that along the way. But the, the pivot, which happened a few years ago, so what had happened was... I was kind of getting bored in IT. I sort of solved all the tough problems. And I even thought about starting my own company, actually, which I did. It was security-based software as a service. This was on my own time. I brought it all the way to the point where I had to invest in sales and marketing in order to take the next step, in order to you know make this profitable or at least generate some revenue. Um, and it dawned on me that, you know, Chris, you really enjoy the cybersecurity stuff. You're spending your free time looking at these things. The company has a need for it. You need to tell them that, you know, they, they've got a need. Like our customers are asking us about our cybersecurity. Our answers aren't very good. You can make it better. You can provide the, the proper answers to them. Volunteer and take the initiative and make that happen. And so I did. That sounds great. So cybersecurity has evolved a lot during the years. What would you say are the biggest changes that happen in that industry from the time you started till now? The amount of care. <laughs> it, it used to be that uh, no one really cared about security. Companies, it wasn't of interest to them because, you know, frankly, it didn't affect their bottom line. Any investment that a company would make in IT or more importantly in cybersecurity, you know, it's almost like it's lost money. They don't see it. They're not really sure what happens and why they need it. You know, if they're to spend money to hire people and buy tools and, and technology to them, you know, what's the point? Like, is this going to help generate sales or revenue? Do we have a problem with security today? You know, are people hacking into our systems? And it used to be that the answer is no, but that's changed <laughs> quite dramatically in the past couple of years in particular, you know, as you look at, at countries or governments in the world where they have shifted from, we'll say the physical environment, kinetic warfare, we'll say, to uh, the cyber domain, where it's very easy for nation state actors. Well, it's not easy, but uh, because they invest a lot of resources into it, but it used to be easy for them to infiltrate systems in other governments and steal information or do damage or, or what have you. And so these were making news headlines. And as they did, the executives and people on the board levels and investors took note 
And they said, well, we can't have our IP stolen or we can't you know, make the news headline that bad for business. If whatever company they're running, if they're collecting a lot of consumer personal information and that's breached, well, consumers lose confidence in that company and they might no longer use that service. So it could, it actually could put them out of business. It was those environment of making news headlines. Companies did not want to be breached. So they started to invest more and more into that. And, you know, look at ransomware. Ransomware is something that has evolved. It, it, it used to be not that long ago, a few years ago, where you would get maybe open up an attachment in an email. It's got a macro in it. And that macro is a dropper for some malware on your computer. And, you know, the next thing you know, the your screen turns red and it says your all your data is encrypted and send uh, uh, Bitcoin to this Bitcoin address to get the key to unlock your data. And that was terrible. You know, that became a serious nuisance. But the the ransomware, we'll say the cyber criminals in the ransomware realm, they got smart because people, companies were taking backups of their info and they were able, able to recover and they weren't paying the ransom, but they pivoted as well. And what they've done uh, is not only will they encrypt your data, and I say you, I mean, you know, at the corporate level, they'll steal that data. They'll exfiltrate that data uh, to their own servers and then they'll notify the company and they'll say, hey, you know, you're, you're a victim of ransomware. Not only do you need to pay this fine to unlock your data, but if you don't pay it, we're going to release your sensitive information on the public internet. And that can be very, very damaging for a lot of companies. Like they don't want that. And so they started to pay. And as they paid money, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, or in many cases, millions of dollars, this became a professional environment where these cyber criminal groups, and they typically operate, we'll just say in like the Eastern Europe and, and in Russia and some of the other places over there, they become professional and they form businesses out of this because it's big money. They reinvest their earnings. So you look, they could have teams of software developers that are writing the malware, customized malware, malicious software, like a virus. They could have teams that are looking to get access to company resources. They have teams that uh, do the negotiations with the companies. You know, they might reach out to the company and say, hey, you know, you're a victim. We've got your data, pay up, or we're going to release it. And, you know, you got to pay $5 million. And, you know, the company, they, they'll have their negotiators. They, well, you know, we that's a lot of money. We're not, you know, revenue is not that high. We can only afford to pay $1 million. And so there's, you know, there's a bit of a skill in art to that negotiation. And they have teams to do that as well. So it's become very, very professional and serious threat. That sounds extremely interesting. So how would you describe the data? the day-to-day of a director in cybersecurity? Oh, wow. Yeah, every day is different. Every day is a new challenge. Some are more challenging than others, of course, but it's very enjoyable no matter what happens. Yeah, so I could I could be spending um, much of my day in meetings, going through project plans or, or reviewing things uh, or having one-on-one meetings with, with my direct reports. And other days I might, you know, I still like to get my hands dirty. I still like to take a look and do deep dives on things. There was a piece of malware that I come across on a, um, a company whose product that we use. And I took a deep dive on that. You know, I took a look at the binaries and a reverse engineer to really just decompiled it to see what was going on. And I enjoyed that. And yeah, so like every day is different. That sounds great. So 
what would you say is the most rewarding part of your job? Oh, wow. There's so much to it. You know what? Getting paid to do the cool things that I'm so very much interested and passionate about. Like, I really love cybersecurity and I'm getting paid to do it. So like that is, that's win-win. Yeah, for sure. By far, that's that's it. But, you know, the, the team that I work with, they're phenomenal. I enjoy spending time with each and every one of them when we're working through problems. If I'm able to help them out and help them learn, uh, especially for those that want to learn, you know, th- those that show the initiative and their their thirst for the knowledge, you know, they may be early in their career or even mid and they, they want to develop more. If I can help them out and I can see them accept that and apply it and grow from it. Wow. That's yeah, that's very rewarding. That sounds great. So what advice would you give a student who's looking to pursue a career in cybersecurity? We could probably have a podcast on that topic alone. Yeah, let me just organize my thoughts here. I'll say this, and it's not really specific to cybersecurity, maybe tech, or maybe just in general. When you say you're going to do something, you do it. And when you say that you're going to do it tomorrow, then you do it tomorrow. And that shows that you're responsible and you can get the job done. And if somebody were to, you know, you have a conversation, you're in a meeting, you're working on a problem and they say, hey, can you, are you able to solve this? Are you able to do this for me? And you say, yeah, I can get it done for you tomorrow. And and so you do that. But, you know, maybe you're not able, maybe you underestimated the problem and it's going to take you a few more days. So you tell the person, you say, you know, I know I said I was going to get it done today, but, you know, I underestimated the problem and it's going to take me a couple more days. I hope that's okay. And that's great. You know, the person will respect that. And they'll say, yeah, you know, no problem. When you get it done, let me know. And that kind of dovetails into the next thing, which is around communications. Now, communications are so important. I know a lot of people focus very deeply on technology, but the soft skills are critical, especially if you want to advance your career. And I don't mean you need to be able to deliver strong presentation, but it's just letting people know, letting your manager know what it is you're up to. If your manager asks you a question, try to get them an answer back quickly, give them the information that you think that they're going to need and try to be mindful of how you deliver that information to them. You don't need to write an epic novel of an email. If it's an email question with an answer, you know, it can be right to the point and that helps them because they don't have a lot of time to read through an epic email They'll look at the key points. They will follow up with other questions if need be. Something else that I talk to, especially for new hires, and we hire co-ops, and I tell them about mistakes and making mistakes. Humans, we're imperfect. We're going to make mistakes. And it doesn't matter where you are in your career or your life, you're going to make a mistake. And it's okay to make a mistake. Like That's just being human. You, know, you hope that the mistake is not is not a big one. And damaging, but you know, you're gonna make a mistake. And when you do, take responsibility for it. Take responsibility for your actions. If something were to happen and it was a mistake and it was your fault, you say that. You say, Yeah, you know, it's my fault. I'm sorry. Here's what happened. And more importantly, you strive never to make that same mistake again. And what that does is it really gives confidence in your abilities and trust. And as a result, your responsibilities are going to increase. Like if I can trust you and and the work that you're doing, then I feel more confident that you're going to get the job done. Yeah. So I think those are the big things. Don't worry about mistakes. 
They're going to happen. Own up to it. Try not to make the same mistake twice. That's some great advice. So if you were to give advice to your younger self, if you could only give one piece of advice, would it be part of what you said? Yeah, hindsight is always 20-20, right? <laughs> you know what? I don't think it would really change anything. You know, I'd say, younger Chris, stay the course. You've done very well for yourself. You're doing the things that you like to do. And yeah, just keep doing it. Like a lot of the things that I talk about for advice to other students, you know, I didn't really have much of that. When I was first starting out, I had to figure out some of this along the way. And, and I had good mentors and managers who helped me figure that out as well. So, yeah, you know, maybe I could tell myself not to beat yourself up on mistakes you've made. Because I've made mistakes. We all have. And, and early on, I used to really beat myself up for these mistakes. And I really shouldn't have. You know, you, don't, you want to be perfect and you strive to be perfect. But you're not going to be perfect. And it's easy to look back at hindsight and say, you know, you made the mistake. Here's the decision you made. It was the wrong one. But if you look back and you say, well, when I made that decision, I made it based on the best information that I had at that point in time. And so you shouldn't have any regrets because of that. You know, you've got new information of the problem. And so as a result, you're probably going to make a different decision. Simply put, Chris, stay the course. You're doing you're doing fine. <laughs> That's some great advice. And I think your mindset about making mistakes and correcting them is a very good one and will help a lot of people. So as we're wrapping up our episode, I'd like to end off on a more general note. So the tech industry is known for its disruptive technologies and having this new thing pop up every few years and then gaining a lot of traction. I was wondering, in your view, what do you think is the next big thing in tech? Oh, wow. Yeah. So I guess if I had the crystal ball on that, I could probably make a lot of money off the, the stock market. And looking at recent events with the stock market, that's, that's probably not a good thing to do regardless. You know, tech predictions are very difficult. You know, a lot of tech publications at the start of the year will try to put out where they think tech's going to go in the next year. And could you imagine being someone who wrote an article in late 2019 and said, hey, in 2020, here's what's going to happen. And then, you know, February, March hits, this pandemic hits, and everything's thrown out the window. And all of a sudden, where people thought tech was going to go, there was a big focus on working from home. And you've seen companies like Zoom take off and things that facilitated this work from home environment. Like nobody could have predicted that. You know, people knew it was important tech, but not to the level of importance that it came in this year. So yeah, it, it's difficult to predict. You know, technology is just going to keep growing and growing. It's going to become more diverse. You look at any particular field and it's growing and it's branching out. You know, from cybersecurity, there's a variety of different areas that you could go there or IT or software development or anything related to technology. Like it's just growing and it's just continually growing and rapidly changing. That sounds great. So that concludes this episode of Inquiry. Thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, wow, Daniel. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the chat. And thanks to all the folks at PTC. This was great. We hope you enjoyed. Thanks for tuning in and having us be a part of your journey to code your future. Make sure to follow us on social media to stay in the loop and for a chance to have your questions answered in our next episode. See you then.